The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 1, 1 through 23. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there is evening and there is morning the fifth day. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, band. You never know what you're going to get when you come to Sacred City. I did not think we would be rocking a toy piano this morning. Or a pot. It looked like there was some kind of pot and pan up here. Harmonica. Loved it. Loved every second of it. Um, We want to welcome you here. This is Sacred City Church. Uh, This is our our corporate gathering of missional communities that meet throughout the week. And we meet here um, on Sunday morning to worship our great God together. It is... um, our privilege and our joy to meet together and, and to worship. Um, we are in the book of Genesis. What we do is we read verse by verse and we study books verse by b- verse all the way through books of the Bible. Last week, um, would you put, would somebody mute me back there? Would you mute, mute my mic so I can adjust it? I'm, get, I'm getting, uh, I'm attempting to grow a beard and I think that's probably what's scratching it right now.
Better? We will see. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to jump in. Uh, last week I studied, uh, we, we spent about an hour on one verse, so we've got 23 to cover today. So tomorrow you should go to work. Okay, here we go. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done um, in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for being God, the creator of all things, and giving us uh, this book this story, this word to know you. We could be like uh, the blind wandering about, searching for someone to guide us, searching to know you, seeking to know God in a million different ways. We would be lost on our own, but you gave us this book, you gave us this story so that we would know you. We would know the truth about you. We would know who you really are and what you've done and how you've acted on our behalf. So I ask that the Holy Spirit would be here in this room. You would give us wisdom to understand. You would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords today that you would anoint the ears to hear your word. Um, I'm very aware of my weakness this morning. I pray that you would be strong in my weakness. You'd be strong in me today. And um, Father, that you would be made much of. I pray that you'd stir the hearts of men. You'd stir the hearts of women. Shake us, wake us from our slumber today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, yeah, please continue to pray for me. Uh, my family has been knocked out this week. Every single person in my, in my household got the flu, one after the other. It was ugly. It was, when you see last night, this little bitty glorious baby, right? Projectile vomiting, <laughs> right? Like there's something just like poltergeist about that. It should not be happening, all right? Something wrong, it seems like. But my doctor says puking's a good thing, getting the bad stuff out, whatever. So, but please, uh, I'm, I'm aware of my weakness. My wife's not here today. A couple of our kids are, but she stayed home with the baby. So you could pray for her. And we've got a, a long ways to go. So if you have a Bible, you're going to open it up to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting right back there on the stool you can grab. You can also follow along with your, your tablet, your iPad, or your iPhone. <clears throat> Uh-uh. My wife would like that, though. All right. Shave. I'm just going to shave the left side of my beard next week. That'll, be, that'll, be, that'll work. All right. So here we go. Today, uh, the curtain's going to raise on the greatest story ever told. It's a story that resonates with every single human person. It's a story of redemption. As Christians, we say that, the, that Genesis is the beginning of the gospel story. Unfortunately, though, many people think they know the gospel and they understand understand it pretty well. When you start talking to them, you realize that most people don't even think of the gospel in terms of story at all. And because of that, they miss out on some of its brilliance. I would say they miss out on most of its brilliance. See, there's something about stories that has a way of sucking us in, right? Stories draw us in. They pull us in. Theology textbooks don't suck us in, right? How many guys just crack open Grudem Systematic Theology and go, whoa, where'd the day go? I just totally got lost in there, 
right? Or you're studying biology, you get that biology text and you just are so enamored with protons and neutrons that you just forget about, oh, I had a date last night. I totally missed it. See, biology texts don't entrance us and make us forget time and space, but good stories do, right? You can sit down for a three-hour movie and it feel like it was 20 minutes. You can sit down and get involved in a book and all of a sudden you look and you've read 100 pages and a good novel or a good story. Stories have a power that just truth doesn't. Now, that's a big statement and we're gonna, I'm going to break it down in a little bit. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, uh, Myth Became Fact, he says this, a man who disbelieved, and this is big, I want you to hear this, a man who disbelieved the Christian story as fact, but continually fed on it as myth, would perhaps be more spiritually alive than one who assented and did not, much think, did not think much about it. I want you to hear what he's saying there. C.S. Lewis is saying, if you, didn't believe the, if you didn't believe the Bible was true, you only believed it was a myth. But if you dwelled on it as a myth, if you read it and rehearsed it and was enraptured by it and believed it and you dug into it as a myth, you would be benefited more than a person who said, oh yeah, the Bible's completely true, but it's kind of just, yeah, it's true. It's a book of facts. It's, uh, it's like a textbook. You would be more benefited for, by believing it's a myth, but believing it as a story than you would as a textbook and fact. Now, he, the reason he believed, there's an intimate reason why he believed this. First off, I want you to know that the book of Genesis is not a myth. And Lewis did not think of it, and later in his life at least, Lewis did not think of it as a myth. But what he's saying is that story has more power than fact. Fact is one-dimensional. You read it, and you hear it, and then you know it, and then you hope to believe it. Right? Fact. Read it, memorize it, take the test. How to change your life? Not much but I have the right answer now. Okay, that's good. Fact is one-dimensional. Story, though, is three-dimensional. It captures your heart, and it can boggle your mind. It can move your emotions. It can wrap you up and wisp you away. Story has more power. There's something that resonates deep within our humanity that, ca- that we're captured by story. Lewis and Tolkien actually often would say there's first belief and secondary belief. And sometimes you can hear a good story and know in your head that it's not true, but it's being told so well, you want it to be true. You hope it to be true. But story has power. Now listen, Lewis knew this very intimately. He was a staunch C.S. Lewis, the, the writer of Mere Christianity, the writer of the, the, Nar- the Narnia series, the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a staunch atheist when he met his fellow author and storyteller, J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien, in my opinion, wrote the best book ever written other than the Bible, which is the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They used to meet together at this local pub outside of Oxford, England, called The Eagle and Child to smoke their pipes, to drink a pint, and to discuss literature. It also happened in the sovereign plan of God that Tolkien was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a Catholic, a very devout Catholic. And one day, Tolkien planted a missional seed in Lewis that eventually led him to become a Christian. And this is how he did it. Tolkien said, Don't you think it's strange that people 
all people, regardless of nationality, regardless of race, regardless of culture, all people universally crave the supernatural. You cannot find a culture on the planet that doesn't have some kind of supernatural stories, supernatural fairy tales, supernatural myths. Don't you think that's strange? See us? He says, people love stories where good triumphs over evil. Why? People love stories where the hero overcomes insurmountable odds to cheat death and save the day at the nick of time. Why? Why do people love stories about eternal youth and happiness? Why do we crave to be a little more, a little more than human? Think about that. Every culture has some kind of story about the fountain of youth. There's a place where you can go. And if you drink this water, you do this, you'll live forever. Why are we infatuated with living forever? The Holy Grail, the fountain of youth, vampires. Why do people have such an infatuation with living forever if life is meaningless? To believe in evolution... You have to believe that life is meaningless. Evolutionists will give this up. Some theistic evolutionists might argue, might disagree. But to believe in the theory of evolution means out of nothing sprang something with no purpose, for no end, for no purpose, and nothing we will return. That's what it means. Absolute happenstance that everything exists, that exists. And this was the the view that was being propagated in Lewis and Tolkien's time. It's called modernism. It's called the Enlightenment. It's called now we know. That's how I like to categorize the Enlightenment. Oh, now we know. Like all cultures before us are primitive and they don't really understand, but we're scientific now. We live in the scientific age. So now we know that we evolved. Now we know. We all, and every generation has its new, now we know, now we know. And Tolkien would go around that, he would go behind that, he would say, why do you think, if we just sprang from the moss, why do all humans desire to live forever? If we know in our head that we will die, from dust we came, dust we will return, why do we have these stories, why do we have these fairy stories? Tolkien told Lewis this, this was huge. Tolkien told Lewis The reason we love stories of the supernatural is because at a deeper level, we know that this is how life is supposed to be. Life should be more like a fairy tale. Why do they, why do fairy tales resonate? Why does every kid want to be a superhero or a princess or, right? Why do these stories resonate? Tolkien says, at a deep level, there's a sense where everyone knows this is the way should, reality should be like, there should be no death. You should rescue the damsel. You should be able to live forever. You should be more powerful. You should be, there's something true. Something, I'm going to use this, something truer about a fairy tale. Lewis kind of was caught up in the moment. And Lewis said, oh, you're right, my friend, you're right. Fairy tales are, and myths, and this is what he said, fairy tales and myths are lies 
breathed through silver. Lies breathed through silver. Man, I wish I could talk like that. Just, you're just having a pint talking like that? Are you kidding me? I wish I was a fly on the wall in that conversation. Right? He was saying, yeah. This is what Lewis is saying. Yeah. Fairy tales, stories, myths, all. We all want to believe them. And we love them. But none of them are true. Their lies breathe through silver. There's something too good to be true. We want them to be true. But they're all lies. In the end, they're all lies. And this is where Tolkien turned the conversation missionally. He says this, Not true, my friend. Look at the gospel. Everything from your fairy stories is there, but it's all true. You have love overcoming hate. You have good triumphing over evil. You have the ultimate selfless hero who humbly lays his life down to save us, but overcomes death at the last moment when it looks like all hope is lost. You have the ultimate fairy tale, fairy tale in the gospel. Tolkien said this. This is kind of what we're going to... This is kind of what I want to build our foundation on. Tolkien said this. The gospel, my friend, is the true myth. The gospel is the true myth. Jesus, what he's saying is this. Jesus is the underlying reality to what every other story points to. And the reason we can know that is because of the resurrection. When Jesus came back from the dead to never die again, he punched a hole into Never Never Land. When Jesus died and he took death upon him and he was put in that tomb, but then three days later, so he was dead, he was in heaven, he existed eternally, he was still alive, okay, for those three days, but then after three days, he was resurrected, he had new life, his flesh took on completely new life, and that flesh would never die again. That's what resurrection is. Resurrection, we did a study last month. Resurrection is not life after death. Resurrection is life after, life after death. And Jesus Christ, when he was resurrected, he punched a hole through the wall of our reality into, I'm going to say, never, never land. Just to, so we get the picture. So now there's this hole in our reality where all people die and all flesh dies and everything is broken and nothing works right and cancer eats away at our body. And Jesus, through the resurrection, punched a hole through that. So now when we look into the resurrection, we get to see a picture of what things are going to look like in his kingdom. Where death will be defeated. Where the thing we hope for, the myth we want to believe, they're actually true in his kingdom. He punched a hole into the ultimate reality where there is no death. And in heaven and the new heavens and new earth, what we love about the fairy tales is true. There's everlasting. You hear that? There is everlasting love. Death can't snatch a loved one from your grip. There is eternal life. There is ultimate satisfaction. Don't you hate that? How much ice cream is enough ice cream? Don't you hate that? How much good music is enough good music? Married folks, how much sex is enough sex? I better ask the men. That's two different questions, actually. (laughs) Two different questions. 
Listen, heaven is pointing. Listen, my whole point is we can never be satisfied. You talk to a hunter. How many deer do you want to kill? All of them? How many fish do you want to catch? All of them. Right? You ask my kids, how much candy do you want to eat? All of it. But there's a law of diminishing returns, right? The law of diminishing returns is once I get some of it, once I get a little bit more, it starts satisfying me less and less and less. Right? You start eating a little bit of candy and what happens? Oh, right? It's like at the movies, you get those Sour Patch Kids. Come on. You start eating those things. This is like heaven in my mouth. I'm loving this. About halfway through the movie, you're like, why is my tongue raw? (laughs) There's a law of diminishing returns, right? the, The lie is you can never have too much of a good thing. Yes, you can. But in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth, you can't have too much of a good thing. We will be, oh my God, we will be satisfied once and for all. And some of us just need to hear that. If you're looking for satisfaction on this earth, it's only found by looking through the hole that Christ punched into our reality. You can have a peak of satisfaction. You can find your satisfaction in Christ, but you can never find it in a spouse. You can never find it in a new dating relationship. You can never find it in food or hunting or hobbies. You can fool yourself for a while, but it will all get boring. Teenagers, Athletes, you think athletics will satisfy you? It won't. You won't find your purpose there. Usain Bolt, I'm the greatest who ever lived. I'm the greatest who ever lived. I'm like, yeah, you are. We'll see you in four years. I really, my heart, literally, I'm watching the Olympics and my theology is like informing how I'm watching this and I'm watching every one of them come off and I'm like, there'll be another guy doing that next year. Your whole idea. This is what I worked my whole life for. I'm an Olympic champion. Yes, you are. And tomorrow, you'll be forgotten. And tomorrow, someone will run faster than you. 20 years down the road, someone will beat your record and you will be forgotten. We can only... You're the fastest man on the earth. Yes. And you will die. You're not superhuman. If you want the supernatural, there's only one way to get it. And that's through Jesus Christ who came for a moment and punched a hole into this reality to show us. I'm just going to call it Never Never Land. We kind of get it. But it's real. It's the true myth. So this is the perspective that I want you to have as we begin studying Genesis today. We're diving into the beginning of the greatest and the truest story that has ever been told. This isn't meant to be read like a textbook. It's not systematic theology. This is a story. It's not written by a scientist to fellow scientists. This book was inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by Moses as he was struggling to teach several million Israelites about their history, about their calling, and about their God. An only story 
has the power to convey such truth. Math is true, but I don't pay money to watch it at the theater. Quadratic equations don't motivate me to love my wife and serve my city. If God wanted to give us empirical evidence and equations, he could have, but instead, thank God, he gave us a story. The curtain here in Genesis 1, the curtain is being lifted. The curtain is being raised. In this first act, and I want you to see this, in the first act of all creation, in the first act of the story that God's playing out, this drama of redemption, the first act as the curtain is being raised, there's one actor. And that one actor is God himself. That's where Moses starts the narrative. That's where God starts the story of all redemption. The story that makes points and and, and makes all the other stories feel true. When you have a hero, listen to this, when when the hero dies at the end of the movie, right? Actually, you look at your watch and there's 20 minutes left of the movie and the hero dies. Are you sitting there going, oh, he's dead. Terrible. He died. Or are you going, something's about to happen. Let me see here. Did he drink something? What? How's this guy coming back? I mean, this story can't end here, right? There's something in it, right? There's something built into story that at the end, if it's end, you're like, wait for it. Or I love, this is the new thing, right? Hold on, hold on. I know the credits are going, but there's got to be something still coming. Right? So we're, we're stuck in there watching Batman or whatever we're watching until like the last credit ro- rolls through, right? Because we don't want to end, and even though our postmodernists and evolutionists and these peri- these, the, 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 the people who are propagating this belief that life is meaningless, they enjoy putting out these new movies where they're really dark and they're really depraved and there is no hope in the end and everything is meaningless at the end. And some of those movies we watch and most of us go, oh, I hated that movie. And that is, a, that, is a, that is a gospel coming from evolution. But there's something more true inside of us that resonates with Harry Potter that... Get up! There's something deeper that resonates with us at the end of the story. We're waiting. I know he looks like he's dead. I don't think he is. Right? There's something that resonates. Why? Because Jesus Christ did it. It was real. All myth is pointing to some true, something true from the Gospels. So, all right, that's a long introduction, but it was an introduction. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And then we're just going to read right, we're going to go right through this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word created there, bara means out of nothing or ex nihilo. God created everything that exists from nothing. He didn't use stuff to make stuff. All right? Now listen, this is where we're going to get, it's going to get a little tricky here and I'm not going to bog us down. I gave you a commentary online that you can get from the city. I encourage you to continue reading it because I'm not going to be answer every question. All right? Again, this is not written to scientists. This is written to people who love and embrace story. I'm not saying it's anti-science. It isn't. But science can only tell us what is. Science can't tell us why. 
Genesis tells us why. It shows us the meaning of it all. It gives us the purpose behind all of creation. That everything exists in the beginning, God. Everything exists because of God and for God's glory. That's why we're here. That's why it's here. That's why the sun rises. That's why you see anything that you see is because God wanted it to be created. God gave us the ability to build. God created all things. Now listen, many people, because they want to believe the Bible, they, want to, they, they read it though like a scientist. And they want, it, they want to think that Moses is writing, telling us exactly step by step, step how God created the earth. All right? And maybe he is. But maybe this is just a narrative, it's true, but a narrative in trying to describe what God is revealing to Moses, Moses is now trying to describe it. This is why. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right? That statement, everything existed. Most theologians believe when God created everything, everything exists. Now listen. What he means is the matter exists and the protons and the neutrons, the electrons, all the stuff that we need to make, all of that exists. And now God's, God's going to spend the rest of the chapter ordering, making, it's different than creating, his creation. So most theologians believe the sun already existed. We, like, you know, down the road here, and I think it's day three or day, day four, when the sun is created. Actually, the sun wasn't created then. The sun was just told to rise. Then the sun already existed. God is just ordering things. All right? So it's important for us to, to, to understand that. You, there's some differences in this. This isn't like a closed-handed issue. Uh, we believe that God created everything. And there's a lot of people, if you go to like answersingenesis.org, they're, they're going to argue scientifically through all this stuff. But um, it makes more sense to me and most theologians that this is just God's way of describing, describing how he ordered things. So let's keep reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Without form and void. Now listen, this is written to the Israelites as they're fleeing the Egyptians, right? They're in the middle of the desert. This same exact Hebrew phrase, without form and void, is used when he's referring to the desert that they're walking out of. It's without form and void. So I want you to think, most of us when we, oh, without form and void, this must be like this big gassy mass. It's just blubber. Right? And it's just the earth is without form and void. And it, man, that must have been bad. Listen, nothing God created was bad. When God created in the beginning, he created, it's still good. It's good before he says it's good. And I'm going to get that in a minute. It's without form and void. Most theologians believe and scholars believe that this is a desert. He's saying the earth looks like a desert. And an easier way to say it is it's uninhabitable to man. So what you're going to start picking up here is, is God is doing something very specific. He's creating the world with man in mind. He's building the stage that his drama of redemption will play out on. So when he says he makes something and it is good, it wasn't not good before. It wasn't good for man before. So he is ordering all things for the good of his people, for the good of humankind. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Many, a lot of theologians believe all he's talking about, he's not talking about it's eternally dark. He's talking about it's nighttime. And God starts his work at night. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Okay? Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Now listen, right away, we see something. We see that God exists right now in at least two persons. He is one, but he's got multiple persons. We have the Father, God, Elohim, and we now have the Spirit who is hovering over the face of the water. One of the things I want you to see here and, and the author is meant to see is we do not, we do not serve a deist. We don't have a deistic belief that God created all things and then he wound it up like a clock and he just said, go. And now God is sitting, sitting back and just watching his stuff, watching creation unfold. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Like an eagle, the same word is used, as an eagle hovers over her nest and pushes her baby birds out to teach them how to fly. That the Holy Spirit was intimately involved. God was intimately involved in his creation. Many world religions believe that God is unpleasable. He's so far removed. He's so distant. He's kind of started things up and let us have our own way. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is intimately involved in his creation. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God God said, let there be light. And there was light. Listen, this is going to trip you out. Day four. Day four is where the sun is created. God said, let there be light and there was light, but we don't have the sun until day four. Many people believe that this is God. This like in the new heavens and the new earth. Like in the new heavens and the new earth where God himself will be our light. There we go. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. Okay, another point. John one says, in the beginning, the word was God and the word was with God. And that word was Jesus Christ. So right here, and God said, when God speaks, we have something new. We have the entrance. This is Jesus Christ. So now in the first three verses of the book of Genesis, we have the Trinity, what we call the Trinity. We have the father acting. We have the spirit hovering and we have the son speaking. The Trinity, all three eternal together, three in one existed before the beginning and are intimately involved in their creation. We also see something very unique that our God is a God who speaks into his creation. He's not just distant and removed. He speaks into it. And not only does he speak into it, when he speaks, stuff happens. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And what he means by that, not that darkness is bad. If darkness was bad, then we wouldn't have night. What he's saying is light is good for man. Light is good so they can accomplish, or light is good for creation. Light is good to set the stage for humanity. And God separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Okay, first day is done. God creates light. He separates light from darkness. He sets up this 24-hour period where, thank God, we get to sleep. Right? Thank God we get to sleep. Hey, rest is something God created. The cyclical nature of our universe is something that God created. And God said, you're going to see this over and over and over through this first chapter. God said, God saw, it was good. God said, God saw, it was good. It was good as like a benediction. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters you know what? I think many of us, if you're a believer in this room, you might say, oh, I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe in evolution. I believe that God created everything. But many of us are trapped in an evolution, evolutionistic way of living. We don't have thankful hearts for what God created. We wake up thinking like God just wound it up and it's going to go on like this forever. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that he is intimately involved and without him, it doesn't work. And I want, one of the things I want to do today as we go through these first five days of creation is I want us to be thankful. I want us to verbally thank God for aspects of his creation as we go through them. I want to thank God for day and I want to thank God for night. And if you're a parent, I think you need to get really good at doing this and seeing the world with these type of eyes so you can raise your child to be thankful. Who created the sun? Who created the stars? Who created the... God created them. God created them. Let's thank God for them. Moses is trying to show his readers that everything exists for God's glory, but for our good. And we should be thankful. And if you know anything about the story of the Exodus, the Israelites were condemned for their grumbling and their complaining because they weren't faithful. They weren't thankful. Let's keep reading. And God said, verse 6, let there be an expanse in the, this is kind of crazy. In the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Uh, okay. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. Now you see most of you have a little footnote there under heaven because the scholars have a very difficult time translating this Hebrew word into our English. And what it really, the best translation is not heaven. The best translation is sky. Okay. It's, but this is, this is what it's more than just sky because it's where the birds fly and it's where the stars are hanging. Okay. So it's, it's rendered here heaven because it wants you to think heavens. Like when you look up everything you see in the day and everything you see at night, that's what he did. So what God does on this third day or on, what God does on this second day is God separates he puts the sky in the sky. And he separates the waters from above, which is the clouds. He separates the waters above from the waters on the earth, the seas, the oceans. All right? 
Last night, I was sitting out on my deck. It was a beautiful night. I'm looking up at the stars. Absolutely amazing. Thank God for the sky, right? Thank God for the sky. Now listen, and, that, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. We've got this pattern. We've got this rhythm that's happening. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. See, Moses is trying to set the stage right here so you guys start to see God as this phenomenal set designer that every single piece has its part to play. I want you to think of this. He's telling them God caused the earth to come up out of water. Why would that be significant to people leaving Egypt? Because they had just walked through the Red Sea. God had just parted the Red Sea. And, he, and Moses is trying to tell them, the God that parted the Red Sea is the same God who separated the waters from the earth in the beginning. This is nothing for him. This is everyday business for him. God is still intimately involved in his creation. And he's intimately involved with his people. Verse 10, God called the land earth and the waters were gathered together and he called them seas and God saw that it was good. He's setting the stage here. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind and on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning on the third day. How many like fruit? Come on now. Listen, I realize that we're in this mode that we're just, you're going to think, I'm thankful for fruit. How many like cobbler? Come on now. Right? Banana, for me, you know, like, my mom makes some banana cream pie and mm, right? There's some stuff, there's some stuff that fruit, fruit makes me happy, all right? And I'm just going to be honest, yet the other day we're sitting on the deck and my son runs out and my, my son thinks it's absolutely amazing that he can take an apple off an apple tree. My neighbor has an apple tree. He pulls his apple off. Can I eat it? Yes, son, you can eat it. You mean they made good apples in other places than Walmart? <laughs> yes, son, Walmart doesn't make apples. God does. He gave us trees and he said it was good. And, I, and I, my mind is literally like, he was just like, the garden. They love to go out to my garden. They love to pull things off the garden. And they look, is this ready, dad? Is this ready? Boom, they pull it in. They want to eat it right away. I think we lose some of that by going, this is always going to be there. I'm going to go to Walmart. This is always there. Our God, for our good, created, I don't even know how many, thousands, millions of fruit trees, of plants that produce after their own kind. How many of you go out to an apple tree and you're like, oh crap, it's an orange day. I didn't realize that. 
fruit, vegetables they produce after their own kind. Again, anti-evolution. We don't jump species. We don't, pear trees don't evolve into plum trees. God created them to produce after their own kind. Can we have micro, microevolution? We talked about that a lot last week. Yes, microevolution, okay. Macro, absolutely not. How many are thankful for trees? How many are thankful for fruit, right? Can we be thankful for that? Do I, like, I mean, we're talking about creation and there's a lot, of, but let's just talk, let's just be real. I'm thankful for fruit. How many like smoothies? God had smoothies in mind when he planted the tree. Just telling you that. How many like tea? How many like coffee? Come on now. Come on, right? I could preach. You start talking about coffee. God had it in mind. I mean, like chocolate. Yeah, come on. See, God, this is amazing. Why does God do this? Why does God do this? Why is God so extravagant? Why does God create berries and plums and cucumbers and apples and oranges and mangoes and a bajillion other ones that I have no idea about? And he says, it was good. He's ordering creation for what's to come next week. And that's the creation of man. He's making it so we can enjoy it. Thank God we don't walk around eating leaves. Right? How boring. There's millions of of different fruits and produce that we get to eat. Okay, I just spent a lot of time on that, but whatever. That's the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Okay, see here. Again, this is day. This is why some people get all jacked up when they're reading this. They start reading it like a scientist and they're like, what do you mean? God's creating stars and moon right now. Well, then how did he separate the 24-hour period before, and how was there light, and how was there darkness, and see, this is the, the Bible must not be true. No, 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 no. God is ordering things right now. He created it all in the first verse, and now he's putting it together. He's ordering it. He's describing it. He's, he's, many people say right here when he says, let there be light, and the sun comes up, all he's saying is, son, son, do it again. I believe, it is my theological position, that God looks at the sun and says, do it again every day. I do not believe that God has wound creation up like a clock and then just set it down. All right, I I got some stuff to do. Like my son, who when I spin him around and I make him almost throw up and I put him down, within eight seconds, he says what? Do it again. I scare the living daylights out of him. What happens? Do it again. Like there's a, t- there's a time as a parent, you just say, I'm going to vomit. I have to stop. <laughs> Listen, kids, there's something inquisitive. There's something brilliant. There's something, they just... Enjoy the beauty of things in ways that we get used to. 
And God is more like, I, I think, more like a child in this than we are. We walk out, we stumble out of our house in the morning going to work, and the sun's up. Oh, great. Oh, it's giving me a headache. Right? And I, I really believe that God is so intimately involved that he says, do it again every day. He says, wind blow. He says, cool it down. He says, rainfall. Every time. Jesus tells us that not even a sparrow can fall without him knowing. He says, he knows every hair that's on your head. They're all numbered. Sorry, Teddy. I just saw the gleam off your head. I had to say something. God is intimately involved with his creation. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, why would he say this? Listen, he's talking. We do this. We still do this. People, what's your sign? What's your sign? Astrology. Astrology is worshiping the creation. The creation can tell me who I am. Oh, you're a Gemini? Oh, that makes sense. I don't even know what any of that means, but. Right? It's creation telling me who I am. Why is he writing this? Because he's writing this because they're leaving a pagan nation. They're leaving Egypt who worshiped the stars, who worshiped the sun, who worshiped the Nile, who worshiped created things. And God and Moses is saying, (laughs) God created that stuff you're worshiping. It's creation. You're worshiping creation instead of worshiping the creator. We still do this today. We would rather worship created things than worship our God. We would rather worship money than worship the God who owns all things. Foolish. Absolutely foolish. And let them be lights in the expanse in the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. What about Pluto? Yep, it's in there. And God set, what about Mars? Yep, it's in there. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Four days into this. How many like the stars? Right? Now, we live in the city. Many of us probably don't even pay attention, right? Some of you go to bed at 9 o'clock, so you don't ever see them. I get that, right? You need to stay up past Wheel of Fortune if you want to see the stars, okay? That's just the rule. It's tough. It's tough, okay? We're going out, and you look up at the Little Dipper. You look at the Big Dipper. You're thinking of these, these pictures we see about Mars. It's, a, it's amazing. It's amazing. You want to start getting into the expansiveness of God and the large, just how big he is, you start studying galaxies. You start studying the universe. It's absolutely, it'll blow your mind. Absolutely blow your mind. And he, and what, why? Why? What, what's the point? Why, why does God create Mars? Because he can? 
Because he wants to? Because it's for our good? So we can look up and go, you know what, one day, I think I want to go there. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we serve. He doesn't, he doesn't just create a, what? He doesn't just create earth. He creates earth and Star Wars. Let's just say it. Brilliant. Last day. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God, this is weird. So God created, he uses that word again, bara. Very specifically. He used it in verse one that said God created everything. And then he, then he starts talking about, and then God made, and then God made, and then God said, and God made, and God made. God is fashioning, God is forming. God is using things that he already created to form and fashion and order. And now when it gets to living creatures, Moses uses the word bara again. He uses created Again, he says this. So God, in verse 21, created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Again, according to their kinds. There's a theme. Like begets like. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, many... Scholars believe the reason he used bara there, the, the, that God created the sea creatures, is because, again, it's coming out of a pagan nation that worshipped whales. They worshipped these large, you know, Leviathan and these large, you know, mythic sea creatures. They worshipped them. So Moses is just saying, God created those. God made those things. What fools in their pagan religion worship, God made. He spoke them into existence, showing the pure superiority of Elohim, the pure, magnificent over and above all of creation that God is. And this is something special. For five days now, we have God speaking and God seeing and God saying it's good. God speaks, God sees, God says it's good. He's ordering creation. He's putting the pieces together to play out this story of redemption he's about to tell. But then look at this God. Look what this God does here. Verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. This God is not just omnipotently powerful. He's not just unimaginably creative. He's not just too much in creating a million berries and huge galaxies. He's good. He blesses them. He places something true about himself, this multiple, 
this ability to multiply and be fruitful. And he says, now animals, sea creatures, all of that, go multiply, go be blessed. So do you have to, listen, do you, do you take a, 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 a male dog and a female dog and do you have to coach them? Do you like, okay, this is what, listen, this is what I want you to do. Please, I really want puppies, okay? So this is what I want you to do. All right, just, she looks good, don't she? Okay, all right. Do you have to get a book out? Okay, let me, let me show you. Draw stick figures. Right? What happens? I'll tell you what happens. Well, what happened was, uh, I'll tell you what happens. As you go looking for your male dog, and your male dog's not in the backyard. That's what happens. All right? And you go over there, and you got this, you know, three, $4,000 fence, and you look, and there's holes that large men could crawl under your fence because he is getting after something, all right? He can smell it in the wind, right? And he is after that female, right? Why? Because God looked at your dog and said, be fruitful and multiply, and that is now an innate desire in that dog to procreate. And when you're like, stop it, he's like, I'm just obeying Jesus, I'm doing what God made me to do. Get off me. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, listen, so God creates things to multiply. It's God's blessing upon the earth. He's, he's, he's got a good story going here. Like this is a, you know, like for me, I, I would, I'm going to make an animal. You know, and then what happens? Does the story keep moving on? He's making things to beget more things. He's making fruit trees to produce more fruit trees. He's making animals to produce more animals. Why? Why? He blesses us to multiply. He blesses us to be fruitful. We're not meant to exist solely to ourselves. Animals either. Fruit trees either. Why do our groups multiply? Why do missional communities multiply? Why do churches multiply? God made us to multiply. Why do we want to make more disciples? God made us to do it. Why do I want to make children? God made us to do it. And it's fun. Throw that in there too. God is good. God is infinitely good. Can you see what a great and mighty God we serve? Not only is he great and mighty, but look how good he is. Right now in the story. Everything, you know what, many of us, you would hate this. There is nothing to complain about right now. Half your vo- vocabulary would be gone. Dude, that sucks. No, it doesn't, actually. There's nothing here that does. It's perfect. Your mama said, right? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> Many of us would be dropped in here and we wouldn't have anything to say. I wish there... No, you don't. It's perfect. It's fruitful. It's peaceful. It's 
beautiful. It's fulfilling. It's meaningful. Can you imagine every time you take a bite of a fruit, that's the most amazing thing I've ever tasted in my life. There's no diminishing returns. Everything is perfect. God has created Eden. And listen, just so you want, just so you know this, this is on the earth. This is not up in heaven. God is not building heaven. God is building a specific locale. The same land that people are still fighting over in the Middle East right now. This is what we're talking about. God had blessed it and made it fruitful. This is Eden. This is paradise. This is a perfect place for God to give birth to his next creation, human beings. And what's not to love? Isn't this how most good stories begin? Everything's good. You you know, like that's what most stories, right? Everything's good. Things go bad. We need a hero to save us. Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? He saves us happily ever after. Why do those stories ring true? This is the first act of the true myth. Everything is good. This is act one. God is good and he created everything as good. Do you long for this? Do you desire this? Doesn't your heart resonate with a world free of pain, a world free of strife, a world free of turmoil, a world absent of cancer? Does this resonate with you? As the story unfolds, you're going to begin to see God doesn't screw it up. God doesn't change things. God doesn't ruin it. God doesn't do it. We do. Humans do. People choose to rebel and turn away from this good God. But God, in the third act, God, in his graciousness, he still pursues us. He does the unthinkable in sending his own son to earn our way back into paradise. Jesus does this through his death. He pays the debt that our rebellion owes. And I said last week that the whole Bible teaches us that the last things will be like the first things. Heaven and the new heavens and the new earth will be a lot like the earth, the land that we heard described today. Jesus has punched a hole into this reality. He has left heaven and he's brought his kingdom to our earth, but it's not fully here yet. He's coming back someday to consummate his kingdom, to set up his rule and reign over all of creation. And then the last things will be like the first things again. But in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, we get a peek 
into the end of the story. We get a peek into reality. We get a peek into the end things will be like the beginning again. Jesus is what your heart is longing for. He's the only way into this true myth. He's the only answer to the longings of your heart. Do you realize that? What's the story of your life? What are you living for? What's your purpose? If you're not living for God and for his glory, you're wasting your life. And I don't want you to waste another second, another breath, because we're here today and we're gone tomorrow and our life is like a vanishing mist. It's like a vapor. It's gone. And if you're living for stuff, if you're living for money and purses and cars, if you've adopted this Oh, I hate even to say it, but if you've adopted this Kardashian way of living, man, if you've bought into this Olympic way of thinking that if I just achieve enough, then I'll be worth somebody, I'll be worth something. If I get the gold medal around my neck, I can finally stand up and say, my whole life has had meaning because of now. Because of this moment, I know I have meaning. I look at the greatest swimmer to ever swim, right? Michael Phelps. When did Michael Phelps set his world record? Anybody know how old he was? 15. The, the epoch of his life was at 15. Now what? He's, he can't even be, that's pretty pathetic. I, I just want to say that. I mean, that's phenomenal, but like, you can't beat your record from when you're 15? Dude. I mean, that, he was the fastest swimmer in history at 15. And now he can't even compare to his former self. And if his identity is completely in being the fastest swimmer in the world, what's the rest of his, what's he going to live for? Where's his life? Where's his meaning? Where's his purpose now? Many people say the saddest day is the day after they win the Olympic gold. Especially if they're pushing the the age envelope a little bit because they know I'm not coming back next time. I'm done. And then what? Many of those gold medals end up on eBay. The moment that gave their life all their meaning, a gold medal, they're selling it on eBay. There is nothing in creation that can define you, that can give you purpose, that can give you meaning. You were created by God for God. Living for his glory will give you ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose. Parents, you can't live for your kids. They're leaving. I know some of you are going to keep them around until they're like 40 but and ruin them for the rest of their life. But they are, I hope, they are leaving. If you live for your kids, you will idolize creation over the creator. 
God is showing us here. He's showing us himself. He's good. He's powerful. He's the only thing that's big enough and that's ultimate enough that can sustain the weight of our worship for eternity. Your wife can't. Your husband can't. Your kids can't. An Olympic gold medal can't. A million dollars can't. Only God can carry that weight. So I ask you this morning, what defines you? What aspect of creation do you, are you tempted to idolize? Are you tempted to worship? What aspect of creation do you desire more than you desire the creator? That's a big question. And I want you to, oh man, I, Father, I ask that you would just drill that into our hearts. Drill that down deep into us. What aspect of creation do we desire? Do we want more than we want the creator? That is where you'll find your greatest struggle and your greatest opportunity for life change. Because only God can satisfy. Jesus is the reality that your heart is longing for. He's the only way into this true myth. And what I'm offering you today is I'm inviting you into it. You're going to find out pretty soon, this is what's crazy, is God writes us into this myth if we embrace him by faith. And he then gives us a piece of his mission to fulfill on this earth. The plan that he's got, the story that he's writing, and it's, the end's already been written. He lets us play a piece. He lets us play a part in this story if we embrace him by faith. Will you embrace Jesus Christ by faith today? That's what I'm asking. It's the only way back into paradise. It's the only way back into the beginning that we read this morning. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for going above and beyond and creating every proton, every neutron, every molecule, every cell. I thank you for creating the sun and the stars and the sky. I thank you for creating the fish that swim in the ocean and the fish that swim in the lakes. And I thank you for creating whales. And I thank you for creating... Every, everything that you created, you created to give you glory and to give us joy. You spared no good thing. And Father, I repent of my ungratefulness, the lack of thanks that I live with on a day-to-day basis over the common graces that you've given us. I repent of that. And I ask that you would stir your people towards repentance that things were amazing once, that we do desire Never Never Land, we do desire perfection because we came from perfection. But Father, there's a way back into it. At the end, we'll be like the beginning. And we can be there and we can embrace that and we can experience that if we embrace you by faith. Jesus Christ, you're the only way into the new heavens and the new earth. You're the only way into eternal life pray that you would bring people to repentance and you would give them faith this morning to believe. You'd bring people from death to life. Bring them out of their sin into your righteousness. Do this for your glory and for the good of the good of our people and the good of this city. In Jesus' name.
Amen.